If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I said last week that one of the most unpopular doctrines of the Christian faith is the wrath of God. People don't like it now. They've never liked it. But something has been happening over the last 25 or 30 years that is rather unique in the annals of Christian history. And that is there are churches, many, many churches now, who say that they believe in the doctrine of the wrath of God, but they never mention it because it turns people off. Well, I I don't see much difference in that and, and in just saying you don't believe it. All through the history of the church, there have been people who have been unhappy with the doctrine of God. The trend, the trend probably began when the second century heretic, Marcion, omitted the genitive of God in the phrase, the wrath of God, and in his edition of Paul's letters. He wanted to remove God from any notion of being a God of wrath. You, you come on later into the 21st century, and you have uh, a fellow like Rob Bell, who was a megachurch pastor up in Michigan, and he wrote a book that became wildly popular called Love Wins. And he wrestled with the question, if Jesus saves us from God's wrath, how could that God ever be good? How could a God who would put to death Jesus Christ ever be a good God. And how could that kind of news ever be good news? And his answer ultimately was that God's love and God's wrath are ir- irreconcilable. And that love must win over wrath if God is to be a gracious God. A couple of years ago, there was a, uh, a bit of a dust-up uh, between the Presbyterian Church USA and the writers of the song, In Christ Alone. The uh, PCUSA wanted to include that well-known hymn in a new hymnal that they were publishing. But they didn't like one line uh, in the song. The line says, Till on that cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, they, they just couldn't quite stomach that. So they asked the writers for permission to change the line to say, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the writers, to their credit, said, no, you can't do that. And so they did not include the, the hymn in their hymnal. But you get the point. God's wrath is not popular. Nobody likes the idea of an angry God. People much prefer a more sensitive, gentle deity. Perhaps a benign, friendly old man like the English version of Santa Claus. But in the face of human evil, divine love without divine wrath yields up a God that has no moral spine. One who is incapable of of dealing out justice to each as they deserve. And such a morally vacuous God, although it suits the proclivity of many people who are uncomfortable with the notion that people should be punished for their sins, 
according to their deeds, uh, they, they kind of replace that kind of God with one more to their liking, to their suiting. One that, uh, while he might dislike sin, he doesn't really hold people accountable for it. He just kind of lets them off the hook, so to speak. And we have many, many modern churches today, again, who are drawing huge crowds and who say in their statement of faith, or if you press uh, the pastor about it, they will say that they believe in the wrath of God, they believe in punishment, but they believe in judgment, but they don't ever mention it. It's better to focus on the more positive aspects of the gospel. God loves you. He wants you to have an abundant life. He wants you to have a life filled with peace and joy and love. And he will help you with your problems. He'll help you to be happy. Uh, and you need to just invite him into your heart because he would never use any sort of means to coerce you, of course. Of course, we don't know what to do with he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come, but that's another story. But there is no mention of a holy God who is perfectly justified in his wrath against sinners. I said last week, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a theologian of many years gone by, a neo-Orthodox theologian that I would not always agree with by any means, but he defined theological liberalism this way, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Well, quite obviously, if that is true, and it is, that is a very accurate depiction of theological liberalism. But it is not an accurate depiction of the Christian faith. Not at all. When the Apostle Paul begins to expound on the gospel that he has proclaimed in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, he does not lead off with the love of God, but with the righteousness of God. And when he elaborates further, he still doesn't mention God's love, but rather God's wrath. Modern critics would not like that approach. They would warn Paul that he's not going to get a lot of uh, followers that way. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Uh, for, beginning verse 18, links this to verse 16 and 17. If we're going to understand why we need God's power in the gospel and why we need His very righteousness imputed to our account, then we need to understand God's settled wrath against sin. If, if we're really not such bad folks after all, and if we can do enough good deeds to earn enough points to get us into heaven, then we don't need God's righteousness. Uh, and Christ need not bear the wrath of God on our behalf. If there is no such thing as the wrath of God, what happened at the cross? You must conclude that, that Jesus' death was just a tragic accident. It was just a terrible accident that God never intended 
to happen, but he couldn't stop it. If the wrath of God is not real, the cross does not make any sense. If the wrath of God is not real, there is no need for atonement. There is no need for the forgiveness of sin. There is no need for Jesus Christ to die. But if we are ungodly and unrighteous in God's sight, as the Bible says repeatedly, if we have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and as a result are under the wrath of God, then we need some good news because that's really bad news. So Paul begins this lengthy section that goes from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, in which he sets forth in great detail the sinfulness of the human heart. First, he gives a general indictment, although the sins that he mentions in verses 23 through 32 may have been more prevalent among the Gentiles. Then he moves chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 to indict those who think that they are moral enough to commend themselves to God. They're going to get to heaven by just living a good life. Then in chapter 2 verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 8 he turns on the Jews, those who pride themselves in having the law of God and he shows that they are guilty before God. And finally he sums it up by saying the whole human race is guilty before God. And only at that point, Paul really doesn't pick up on what he says in chapter three, verse seven, or chapter 1, verse 17, until we get to chapter 3, verse 21. It is there that he begins to talk about the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is there that he starts talking about this, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, the just shall live by faith. All of this parenthesis here is about men being under the wrath of God, about needing the salvation that is provided in Jesus Christ. So in our text, Paul is showing why God is justified in inflicting wrath on the sinful human race, and why, that being true, the human race desperately needs the good news of the gospel. Uh, Paul argues that he has revealed himself to humanity, both through his wrath and through his creation. But we have inexcusably rejected God's revelation Instead, inventing gods of our own that are uh, more palatable to our sinful minds. First, he says, God reveals himself through his wrath against human sin in verse 18. There's an obvious parallel and yet a contrast between verse 17 and verse 18. In verse 17, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. The phrase from heaven adds weight to the revelation. This wasn't just some idea that popped into Paul's mind. It, it, didn't, it didn't originate with Paul. It's a revelation from heaven, from God himself. When we think about the wrath of God, we need to rid ourselves of any notion of, of uh, someone who just has a bad temper. And, and flies off the handle at the slightest provocation. 
Rather, God's wrath is a part of his holy nature. In his settled, determined, active opposition to all sin, God is a God of wrath. If God loves righteousness, then he must also hate evil. If God were all love and no wrath, then he would not be God at all because he would be unrighteous. We know that even on a human plane. If there is a judge somewhere who uh, gives hugs and kisses to convicted child molesters and murderers and sets them free, then he is not a righteous judge. If wrath is not real, why is it that even on a human plane, we are moved to anger by certain sins? We, 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 we get outraged by certain sins. And the more we perceive the, the victim to be innocent, the greater our outrage. You know, I mean, you know, if, if, um, if after the service, you know, somebody walks up to me and, and slaps me, you know, some of you are going to think, well, the old man got what he deserved, you know. And some are going to think, well, you know, I don't know, you know, $10 on the preacher. No. Well, you know, somebody might say, well, I better go help the old man. But suppose that uh, someone slaps Jack back there or one of these other precious children. We're outraged. We're outraged by it because they're innocent. And, and the, the greater the perceived innocence, then the greater the outrage then why would God, who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, not be justified in his wrath? For a sin against God is much greater than any sin against man. No matter how seemingly innocent a human being may be, it is much greater an outrage to sin against God. If we do not respond with some sort of righteous indignation at injustice, then God would not be holy or good if he did not react to evil with wrath and righteous judgment. There's all kinds of biblical references to the wrath of God. If you want to do away with the wrath of God, you're going to have to do away with most of Holy Scripture. I mean, we can, we can ignore for the time being the hundreds of references in the Old Testament, and just start with the New Testament. John the Baptist tells his audience, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In Matthew chapter 23, after pronouncing a series of woes on the Pharisees, Jesus thunders to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Or in John 3.16, that marvelous verse we memorize as children, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. Oh wait, I left out a phrase. Shall not perish. What does perish mean? It means to come under God's eternal wrath. In John chapter 3 we read, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides upon him. The passage that I read this morning for the call to worship. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul says that we all, Jews and Gentiles, 
are by nature children of wrath. That is, we are characterized as being under the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 5, he uses the same expression when he says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, which is the whole human race. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he writes that God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. The entire book of the Revelation is about many, many forms of God's wrath that is poured out on an unbelieving world before, he, before Christ comes again. Paul will acknowledge later in the book of Romans that a day of wrath is coming at the final judgment. But here in verse 18, he calls attention to the present revelation of God's wrath. The verb here means is being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed. What does he mean? Look, look around you. Look around you and you, you can see God's wrath in all of the effects of the fall. In creation, in human misery and suffering, we see floods and fires and earthquakes and hurricanes and tsunamis, famine and disease. All of these things call, cause untold suffering and death. And there are more direct links between sin and God's judgment. The, the effects of of sexual sin and STDs and AIDS and the effects of, of drug addiction and alcohol and all of the misery and destruction that they spawn. The devastating effects of war and terrorism. All of that comes because of the fall. Because God's wrath is being revealed against men. Uh, the ongoing wrath of God is throughout the Bible. He destroys the world with a flood. He rains fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. He punishes both Israel and Judah, allowing them to go into captivity because of their idolatry. The ongoing wrath of God is evident in our world, even in our own bodies. As we age, things don't work as well. The, the effect of sin is seen in ourselves. We have to wear these little things here we can't see. And we put these things in our ears and still can't hear. You know, we develop all sorts of ailments and pain and aches and all kinds of things. And eventually we die because the wages of sin is death. The effects of the wrath of God being revealed all of the time. But by far the greatest example of God pouring out his wrath is at the cross where Jesus Christ dies in agony and blood crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The terrible death of Jesus Christ shows that God does not and cannot just brush sin aside and forget it. God's wrath must be satisfied. His righteous judgment must be satisfied. No one's sin is canceled. 
Either you pay it yourself or Jesus Christ pays it. I said to someone this morning, we've, we've got people now who are going around saying that they're going to cancel human debt or uh, college debt, college loans. You're not going to cancel it. You're just going to put the burden of paying for it on someone else. You don't cancel things like that. They, they've got to be paid. You can't just cancel human sin. It's got to be paid because God is holy. God is righteous. He does have a settled opposition to sin and evil. Someone's got to pay the debt. You will either pay it for all of eternity, suffering the just condemnation of a holy God, or you can receive Jesus Christ and He will pardon your sin because He will pay the penalty for your sin. And then he says that God reveals himself through his creation. Paul is referring here to the general revelation in the created universe. We talked about this last week when we did the overview. But I want to remind you of these things. And so we go back and look at them a little closer. This is not the special revelation that is found in the word of God. But just the general revelation in nature. Most understand his invisible attributes to be a summary term that is explained by the next phrase, his eternal power and divine nature. Anyone should be able to look at the vastness of the universe and conclude that there is a God who is amazingly powerful, incomprehensible, and wonderful. People ought to just be able to look at the universe and know that. And you don't have to look at the vastness of the universe. You ought to be able to look at a gnat or a mosquito and know that there is a God somewhere who created all of this. Get caught in a thunderstorm and, and look at the, the, the terrible effects of lightning. And you ought to be able to conclude from that there is a God in heaven. He is a great God. Men should be able to look at creation and conclude certain things about God. That He exists and that He has great power. Uh, but He says men don't do that. Rather, they look around at creation and they say, oh, accident. Huh. Just happened by chance. Seriously. Really? You mean we're hurtling through space at a thousand miles an hour and we don't run into anything and that's all by accident. All of this universe with its complexity and its amazing intricate workings is just by accident. What, what are the odds of that? That's incomprehensible. To me, it takes far less faith to believe that a sovereign God created the world and the universe and put it into place and fixed it so everything works the way it does than to say it all came about by accident. God is a great God of creation, and His creation proclaims that. 
So men are without excuse. I, I told you last week about Helen Keller, you remember? Who couldn't see or hear, learned to speak eventually, but when her, Annie Sullivan tried to tap out in her hand a word for God, she said, I knew he existed, I didn't know his name. How? Because it was hardwired into his, her existence. The knowledge of God is hardwired into man. They can know that there is a creator. There's not enough there to know the plan of salvation. There's not enough there to know about atonement and justification by faith alone, but there's enough there to know that there is a God. So that answers the question, will God judge the innocent heathen who have never heard about Jesus? There are no innocent heathen. There is enough evidence in creation to know that there is a God. And if man responds positively to that revelation, God will see to it that he hears the gospel and responds to that. And secondly, I hope you can see how utterly absurd the doctrine of evolution is. Many, many well-known atheists have talked openly about evolution being so valuable because it lets us out of any accountability to God. Although there is abundant evidence of an all-powerful creator, men cling to the absurd idea that it all came about by chance. I, I keep using this illustration, but here's an iPhone. <clears throat> it's, I don't know, it's got some letters, but I can't remember. They change them so often. SR, XR, something. But you know how this came about, do you not? Well, there was a warehouse in Cupertino, California, and for thousands and 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 millions and billions of years, they'd been storing all of this material. And one day, someone set off a nuclear explosion there. Boom! <laughs> Out came my iPhone. Just right there. All by chance. Now, you know that's absurd. The absurdity of it is what makes the point. This thing had thousands of engineers who worked for years, put it all together. Men much smarter than me. I can barely understand how to operate it. And yet those same men will look at this creation that is infinitely more complex than this iPhone and say, chance, just big big bang you know just happened everything just kind of fell in place I just don't believe that I just can't I just can't believe that the great New Testament scholar Dr. Tom Schreiner says God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world Experiencing the, the, the wonder of the world around us imparts to us an awareness of a creator who is distinct from creation and who is sovereign over the operation of his creation. So Paul says, for since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. The visible things of the world point to an invisible Creator who possesses eternal power and a divine nature. And human beings have been wired up to know Him, to believe in Him. The tragedy is, rather than appropriate the knowledge of God as their Creator and worship Him, human beings instead reason their way away from God. Paul identifies the human response to God's revelation of Himself in nature as issuing in a refusal either to glorify Him or to thank Him. And that results in people becoming foolish, having a, a, a darkened mind. And they exchange the glory of God for inglorious idols that resemble birds and animals and reptiles. Sin turns people's minds away from God and against God. Sin doesn't simply mess with man's moral compass. Sin infects the mind to such a degree that human reasoning assumes a default position that is hostile to God. People prefer to be stupefied by their sin rather than immerse themselves in God's glorious majesty. Human beings prefer the dementia of evil over the joy of worshiping the Creator. An early church father by the name of Origen said, those who seem to exalt themselves as living in the light of wisdom were cast down into the deepest darkness of stupidity. <laughs> that is the story of mankind. It's not an upward progress, it's a backward regression. There's enough evidence that to know in God's revealed wrath and in His creation that He is real, that His power is real, that His divine nature is real. But rather than responding positively to that revelation, men suppress it. And hence, the need for the gospel. For in, only in the gospel that the wrath of God can be satisfied and that our sins can be forgiven. We're going to stand and have a word of prayer. Then we're